and welcome to the Caring Congregation podcast, where we seek to educate and equip pastors and congregational care ministers to develop and implement congregational care ministry and to provide ongoing training and resources to existing care ministries. I'm Reverend Joy Dister Dominguez, and with me today is Reverend DeAndrea Dare and Kathy Lynn for part one of a two-part series on care for those who have experienced a death of a child. I fully recognize this is a very difficult conversation, and yet it's one that we need to have. Pastors, congregational care ministers, and laity need to hear these stories and hear how we can support parents and family members who have experienced such a horrible tragedy. After the death of her son, Max, D'Andrea created a fantastic organization called A Memory Grows, which she'll talk a little bit more about. But A Memory Grows is a 501c3 charitable organization that serves as an outreach to grieving parents and as a resource to hospitals, clinics, hospice groups, churches, and other nonprofit organizations. Their mission is to provide a space of healing and peace for parents who are grieving the death of their child by bringing together those who have experienced a similar loss in a retreat setting. And they honor and celebrate the children while making connections with others who truly understand this journey. And a memory grows where love carries on. So welcome, DeAndrea and Kathy. I'm so grateful and honored that you are with us today. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, I want to start first, um, DeAndrea, if you would share a little bit about um, you, who you are, your ministry, and, um, and a little bit about Max and, and how this all started. Sure. I'm uh, an elder in the United Methodist Church and had served um, previously before founding A Memory Grows in uh, both local congregations as well as um, hospital settings as a hospital chaplain. And so I was serving a large congregation uh, when my husband and I were expecting our very first child. We uh, did not know whether or not um, the baby was going to be a boy or a girl. We were um, waiting for the big surprise on the day of of delivery. And we were so excited as, um, you know, first-time parents are. And I was older, um, and so I was being followed for um, high risk because of my age and because of um, a, a chronic illness of type 1 diabetes. And um, one time I saw a specialist who said, we don't have to worry about you. Everything is so under control. We don't have to worry about um, uh, any kind of issues such as stillbirth or anything like that. And when I heard that, I thought stillbirth, oh my goodness, that still happens. Like that literally mm, came into sure. my head and um, the congregations that I'd served were so excited and we had so much support. We were just surrounded by excitement and love. I had mentally, you know, written down the date that the baby would be baptized when I came back from mm -hmm. leave and, um, just so many hopes and dreams. And um, when I moved into the third trimester one Sunday, I uh, was sitting in front of the congregation and my feet were swelling so bad. And um, by the, I, I could, I had to take my shoes, my feet out of my shoes. And by the end of the service, several people commented on how big my feet were. And I was, 
a little annoyed because I thought, no, you're not supposed to be staring at my feet. You're supposed to be listening sure. you know, to the servant, sure. you know, and everything. Well, lo and behold, I, I said, oh, I'm going to go home. I'm going to put my feet up. It'll all be fine. And, um, and so later on that day, um, the, the feet did not go back down. And so um, we started contacting my doctors and eventually was told to go to the hospital to be observed. I thought be observed meant, you know, take your toothbrush and just go for a couple hours. Um, and it was there when I arrived that the nurse said, um, you are not going to leave this hospital until you have this baby. And that may be tomorrow. And that was the first indication that something was different than what we had expected. And so um, I became, I, I started going through a lot of tests. Um, I was stabilized. People came the next day to the hospital. We were just so excited because we knew a baby was coming. Um, lots of doctors rotated through, but everything was looking good until that evening. And I um, had a horrible pain. And so um, I was made comfortable. Um, I didn't know if I was in labor or not. I'd never done that before. So I didn't know what sure, labor felt sure. like. And mm -hmm. I asked and they assured me that I wasn't. Um, and then um, because the baby was incredibly active, they um, took him off of, or took the baby off the monitor um, and just tried to get me comfortable. And so um, he, he, the baby was not being monitored. Um, I went to sleep eventually after the pain subsided. And then I woke up um, at two in the morning and um, lots of things had changed. And so we called the doctor in and um, there was no heartbeat at that time. And I, I remember the words, um, there is no heartbeat. We have to do an emergency C-section. Um, it's our only hope of saving the baby. And so I, uh, I was rushed into the um, operating room, had no idea if my husband was even there or not. Everything was happening so quickly. And I just remember the kind, kind words of the anesthesiologist who was about to put me under. And all I could see were his eyes. And they were so compassionate. And I'll, I'll never forget mm -hmm. this because I think it shows just how, um, how just the simple words of care and um, when somebody genuinely, um, you know, has has love and grace in their heart, how that can be conveyed even without, um, you know, lots of flowery words. And so he said, um, my name is, and he said his name, and he said, I'm going to take good care of you. And all I could mm -hmm. think was, don't take care of me, take care of my baby, please. And then I thought something came into my mind and I thought, this is the end. And, um, and I went out and the next thing I knew, I woke up in the operating room and it was completely quiet. And my husband and a nurse were standing beside me and she said, you have a son, um, which I had always hoped to have a son because I had, um, uh, six nephews that I loved to mm. be rough with and have fun with. Yeah. And, um, and so, um, she said, he looks just like your husband. And I looked at my husband and I said, uh, how is he? And um, I can tell by the look on his face, he didn't have to say anything. And I said, he didn't make it. And he said, no. And it was just like, and that moment, everything that, um, you know, was certain kind of in the world shattered around me. And I just didn't quite know how to, 
how to go on or how to live. And I just wanted to see him. I wanted to be his mom. I didn't want to have to leave him at the hospital and go home. Um, and I just had to find, um, I just had to find my way. And I felt mm. so incredibly lonely. Yet I had, you know, tremendous family, tremendous friends, an incredible congregation, multiple congregations supporting me. But it became a very dark time because I had never felt the depth of so much love and I never felt the depth of so much pain all at one time. Mm -hmm. And that's what, what grief is, is, you know, you love so deeply that you grieve very deeply. And so that was the beginning of trying to find a way to continue to live, which I didn't know if I could or not, um, in a very different way. Um, and as a mom of a little boy that nobody else could, could see, you know, and, um, so he, uh, Max, um, is named after my grandpa. Um, and he, uh, the cutest little guy had big feet, um, looked just like his dad, except he had my nose. Um, and just, um, just everything that I could have, you know, ever dreamed. You talk about knowing such great love, and having all that hope, and then to know when you lost Max that um, that sadness, that deep grief, and can you describe what that felt like in your body? I said that I had never felt so full, um, and I had never felt so empty and broken at the same time. Um, it, you know, it it my arms ached um, to hold him. And, you know, like it was a physical response. Um, it, it just, um, it was just kind of a, a dichotomy of feelings all at, all at once and feeling like, um, I, I was a mother and I had, um, you know, everything I dreamed of and yet, no one else could see me as a mother because I wasn't going to be carrying a baby around um, at all and feeling confused. Like, how am I supposed to live in a world where I feel like I'm something, but maybe, you know, no one else will recognize that or see that. And so it was, it was a confusing time too. And just trying to figure out, um, you know, one's identity after, Mm -hmm. uh, after you have a child that you can't hold in your arms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that in your mind you had even a baptismal date, and as a as a pastor, that's those are sacred moments. Thanks for joining us for today's podcast. We hope that you find this informative. If you would like additional resources, please check out our website, thecaringcongregation.com. Also, we have our national webinar that's coming up in the spring, February 25th and 26th, that will be an online format. Be sure to share this podcast, like it, and uh, give us a review. And now, back to this episode. What was your next your next step of, of processing? Where did you um, where did you turn first for support or care? So I said pretty early on that I needed to be with other people who had experienced this. And I 
ask anybody that came to the hospital, um, you know, do you know of anybody whose baby, you know, um, died that was, whose baby was stillborn? And do you think you could connect me with them? And so I started, um, I just needed to know that, number one, I could keep on going. And um, number two, that I really felt like I was going crazy. Um, the thoughts in my mind that I never had before. Um, and so uh, people started contacting me. And mm -hmm. um, some of them were from, you know, across the country that friends of friends knew. And then I was connected to one mother that somebody told our story on a NICU um, community group online. And she realized she lived like 10 minutes from me. And so she reached out to me and her first child um, was stillborn. And she said, let's meet at Starbucks. And so we did. And she was the one who recommended to me um, a place called Faith's Lodge in Wisconsin that was um, at the time the only uh, facility that um, provided um, retreats for parents who were grieving the death of the child. And so my husband and I, I went home, I called him at work and I said, they've got to go to this place. And so we did. Mm -hmm. And it was there that I found the support of um, five other couples. All of our children had lived for an hour or less. All of um, our children had died in the past year. And so we were all, you know, in that kind of beginning journey together. And it was there at that place that I first felt like I could recognize a little bit of myself again. Mm -hmm. And then there were other support groups and everything too. And it was just truly the connection of, mm -hmm. um, of other parents um, that, you know, we could just be real together. Sure. And if we were mad, we were mad. If we were sad, we were sad. If we were happy and laughing all at once, that was, that was okay. Because we just, there was no pretense, there was no judgment around that community. And that's what I needed. Oh, I love that. How, how far um, after Max's death did you attend that retreat? It was just three months. Three um, months, okay. So it was, it was actually er fairly early on. Okay, okay. And so out of that, um, help me see where a memory growth came from, uh, how did that develop after that? So when I came back from um, from the retreat, um, I said to Aaron, I said, I, I feel like I have a dream that one of these days, maybe we can do something like this. And here in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, it'd be so easy to get to because of the, you know, kind of hub of DFW International Airport and everything. And and I thought, you know, there's a lot of resources around here. And um, and so, um, you know, time kept moving. And I called the Faith Lodge and I talked to them about how they began. And I asked lots mm -hmm. of different questions. And um, it was right about the time that Max's um, second birthday was coming mm -hmm. around. And um, I uh, had had a lot of wonderful support Um I also had a lot of people who um, I've come to, you know, realize just didn't know how to be present with um, mm -hmm. a loss such as this. And one day somebody said to me, you know, we're really concerned about you, Andrea, because it's been um, two years and you still say his name. 
And it was truly that night that I went home and I said, I think it's time. I think it's time to explore this. And I was in a much better place, um, you know, emotionally and, um, you know, mentally and everything where I felt like I was ready to explore and figure out how to do that. And so, um, you know, the district superintendent and the bishop, thankfully, were very affirming of this idea. And that meant a lot to me because they recognize the need for something like this. And so, um, so that's, that's kind of how, how it began is, um, and we started out with mostly, you know, infant loss retreats. And then each year we, um, we grew, but it was based on, you know, the central idea of community and not walking um, alone and having the assurance Mm -hmm. that, that there are people that are, walking this journey with you and that your children, your child, your children's story matters and it should be carried on as their legacy. Yeah, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. Thank you. Um, And we will talk more about Memory Grows, but I do want to invite you, Kathy, to share with us your story of Nathan. Nathan was uh, the third of, um, has an older brother and a sister, and they're all four years apart. So he, um, by the time he came along, I was an older mother also. And um, I, uh, I really wanted to make a point. He was such a joy. He was very planned and very expected. And, um, and I really, I was so excited to have another opportunity to have you know, a, a, another baby, another child. And so he, uh, we were all very, very excited about his arrival and he was loved on and tormented by his. <laughs> siblings, like <laughs> and sure. Was, they would tell you he was spoiled and they're right. He was, he was really spoiled for being the youngest. <laughs> so, um, he had, a. uh, you know, very normal childhood. Everything was progressing along. He was a goofy, silly little boy um, who, um, he was not the least bit bit athletic, but he loved sports and he had lots of energy and he just uh, was a good reader and good student and chess player and swimmer. He liked to swim. Um, But Anyway, the summer that he was seven years old, he started having some headaches and um, we were getting ready to take a, a family trip to Colorado to drive. And I, I, he had had a week of these headaches and had had some vo- nausea and vomiting associated with them. So I reached out to my pediatrician. He said, you know, if you weren't going out of town, we would just watch this. But because you're about to leave, we need to take a look and make sure everything's okay because, because it's been this week of these headaches. So we went in to, um, he actually got us an MRI scheduled, which I'm, I'm very grateful for because um, we went in for the an MRI on a Saturday morning thinking this really isn't going to be anything. We had planned to go to breakfast right afterwards. And um, so he was getting the MRI. I was sitting in the room with him and um, while he was having it and after at the very end of the MRI, the radiation tech came out. There was not a doctor. This was a satellite clinic and there wasn't a doctor there. And the tech came out and she didn't look right. And she looked at me and she came over and, and she was very, very good with Nathan. And she told him he did a good job. And she came over to me and she said, come pick your baby up. Now he was seven. He wasn't a baby, you know, but she told me to hold him. And so I did, I picked him up and, and she, as we're walking 
into, she said, come with me in, into the office. And as we're walking in, she said, there was a, a positive finding on the, on the MRI. And so we went into her office and she took Nathan out to sit with my mom. My best friend had come. My husband wasn't there that morning. He was working because nobody thought this was going to be a big deal. And, um, so he went out, she showed me the MRI, um, and I'm a, I'm a physical therapist, so I know my brain anatomy. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I saw this picture of his brain with a huge tumor in the middle of his brain. And, um, we were sent then emergently to cook children's hospital and, um, were evaluated by the neurosurgeon that was there. And I remember him coming and he didn't end up being our surgeon who, who removed Nathan's tumor, but, by then, obviously, my husband was there. We were all in the room, and and as they're looking, they redid an MRI, and uh, and he came in to talk to us, and he said, "We don't know till we do a biopsy what this is, but it does look very serious." And um, and he said, "You all need to do. You need to reach out." This was the very first day before we even really knew anything. He said, "You are going to need to share this with your friends and your family and your community, your school, your church." He said, you cannot do this by yourself. So that even though we weren't sure what his diagnosis was, that was pretty foreboding. I thought, you know, he knew, he knew he had been around for a while and he knew what we faced. And and it turns out he was exactly right. And that was hard for us. We're very, very private people. Um, and uh, so to come out and have to share this very difficult thing, um, it was hard. But I, I'm thankful that we did because that was um, there. He was right. There's no way we could have done that by ourselves. And mm-hmm. so I remember that was on a Saturday and that Sunday morning we woke up and uh, I remember looking at my husband, who's a surgeon, used to fixing people and making everybody mm-hmm. better and everything better and is usually not very concerned about things, um, medical things, nothing ever rises to the level of making him, you know, concerned. I remember looking at him and saying, how, how are we going to do this? And he said, this is a, this is a marathon and not a sprint. And he said, Mm -hmm. we'll just do what we have to do. And he didn't have those reassuring words of it's going to be okay. And, you know, this isn't a big deal because he knew it was a really big deal and, and no one could say it would be okay. So that started our journey and he went on and had um, his tumor removed and we had a wonderful experience at the local children's hospital here at Cook and his neurosurgeon was amazing and everybody we met was amazing and they got out about um, over 95% of his tumor was removed and um, that was very promising. But even when the surgeon came to talk to us, he again, they by then they'd taken the the parts of the tumor that they were going to biopsy, but he said, it looks, this is a weird looking tumor. And Mm -hmm. so both Jeff and I know from our background that tumors looking weird is not never a good thing. Um, So anyway, he did fantastic after his surgery. He had no deficits, very minimal Mm -hmm. deficits after the surgery, flew through his recovery. We had anticipated we might be in rehab for weeks or months, we went home from the hospital five days after his surgery and, and he wow. started school three weeks later. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. So he, he just had a fantastic attitude about the whole thing. Um, we learned while we were in the hospital that his, his tumor was a glioblastoma multiform, which is a, a very aggressive malignant brain tumor. That is the most common brain tumor in adults. It's not common in children. Um, and so because of that, it, there's very limited treatment options for him. Our mm-hmm. 
the team that met us and told us, gave us his, his diagnosis and, and we came up with a plan. Uh, the doctor, the neuro-oncologist said, you can take him home. You have some choices. You can take him home right now. He's had his surgery and he cannot have anything to have to do with doctors and hospitals. And just, you know, if that's what you choose to do, he said, that's a good and loving choice. He said, you can do the standard of treatment, which has been the standard of treatment about 50 years for children who have this tumor. And it's just radiation, it's surgery and radiation. And the radiation will keep it at bay for a little longer than the surgery. It's very aggressive. So it was going to grow back quickly. Um, he said, you can do that and it has minimal side effects, you know, and that'll buy you more time. And that's a good and loving choice. And he said, or he said, actually, he does qualify for a clinical trial that we have. Um, and you could do that. It's a, it's a chemo and radiation combination. He said, and the chemo has very little side effects. Um, so um, you could do that and do that here in Fort Worth. And, and that's a good and loving choice. So we had three choices mm. that were all loving, but none of them were good. Um, sure. you know, none of them really offered us much hope. Um, it, we chose the chemo route because that did offer, there was a possibility, you know, of maybe, mm -hmm. maybe mm -hmm. he will be the one that responds. Maybe this will be a, a groundbreaking treatment. So, so we chose that and, um, mm and went home. And that was probably one of the hardest things we, of the journey of, as a parent, it was sitting in that room and listening to this and having this very grim prognosis and, and a plan started, which was good, but then having to walk, you know, a hundred yards down the hallway back to his room and see him so excited about going home and, and everything sure, sure. to be able to balance the trauma mm -hmm. of, the news that we had heard and how our life has completely changed in, in a week. Um, and, and to, to go back and still be his, his mom and his dad and, and to, and he's seven. So, you know, to figure out how much to tell him and how much not to tell him and what to do. And so anyway, we, we were surrounded again by, by amazing people. We, Cooks helped us with a psychologist to, so that I would know how to talk to him about things. And um, he started school Good. and our school community was fantastic. And it brought a normalcy back to our life. Um, he would go half days, uh, but it was fantastic. His class was fantastic. Our school brought in the child life specialists um, from the hospital to talk to his classmates about what to expect when he went through chemo and, and radiation, he was going to lose his hair and all of that. And so uh, we also got hooked up with um, um, Make-A-Wish Foundation during that time. And uh, his wish was to go to Disney World and they kind of fast tracked us along. Usually it takes a lot longer to get your wish granted, but they knew his, his mm -hmm. prognosis was poor. So um, in November, uh, what he was doing amazing with all of his treatments. You wouldn't have known other than his hair loss that there was anything wrong with him. And um, in November, we were given the opportunity to go to Disney World with Make-A-Wish. And that was the most amazing week of our lives together um, as a family. It was so good for all of us. And we'll always mm -hmm. be grateful for that gift. It was sort of a little golden time, sure. certainly an escape where we didn't have doctors or treatments or anything. It was just complete fun for our whole entire family because it also affects the siblings also their life was Absolutely. turned upside down too and so we were all of us were spoiled rotten you don't have any responsibilities <laughs> on these trips and it was amazing wow. so, 
we we did that. We had a fantastic Thanksgiving. Our whole family came together for Thanksgiving, and we had never done that before. Both sides of our family, everybody came in town. He thought that was just the most wonderful thing, and it, it really was. And, and Christmas was was really good. He, we got a good MRI report on him at that time that he was responding to. The, had responded to the radiation. And so things were looking promising. And I was even starting to let myself plan ahead a little for the summer. I made him, I got, I ordered us passes for Hurricane Harbor. <laughs> I thought we'll do that. That'll be a good thing for Nathan and I to do. And just started making plans, which you're terrified to do when you're in the midst of something like this. So he was, he was doing really well, but then in a, the late the late winter, early spring, he started declining. And at first, the, everybody explained it by it's been a rough road for him and radiation, chemo and all the stuff he's been through. But he, we ended up back in the hospital and, a, and an MRI showed that his tumor had um, had come back and was in his brainstem. And, um, and we heard the words that you never, ever want to hear that there was nothing that they could do and that we would have to go home on hospice care. So... So we did. And um, we came home and we had, again, so blessed through this whole journey with every step of the way with the support. We had a wonderful hospice team and uh, a child life specialist that taught me, told me how to tell him he was dying and not something you'd ever, you ever want to. There's lots of hard conversations to have with your children, but that's not one and that you should ever have to have. So um, he was not very responsive. Uh, those last weeks at home, he was, he was, he wasn't comatose, but he was not just not very responsive. He was so, so, so tired. And um, so he, he was um, home with us for about six weeks. And, um, and then um, he died on June 3rd, uh, 2016. He was eight and a half. And um, I was fortunate enough to hold him in my arms and, uh, we, I, my biggest fear, it, it is such a, like DeAndre had discussed the dichotomy of feelings. He was dying and for those six weeks and, and we watched him deteriorate before our eyes. So part of you wants him to be free of that and to not be suffering anymore. Cause I, as comfortable as we kept him, he was still suffering. He, he wasn't able to be a seven year and eight year old boy. So part of me would pray for this to be this part to be over for him but part of then the other part is not is praying that he doesn't leave us yet and so you you just uh I would wake up in the middle of the night I always slept right beside him and I'd have my hand on his chest and and I wouldn't feel him breathe and I would panic and then I'd feel a breath and then I'd feel relief and then I'd feel panicky again because it it continued on and so it was a that was a very, very difficult time, but thankfully, again, we had amazing, amazing support. And, um, um, he, uh, he passed away. Uh, He didn't pass away in the middle of the night, which was my big fear. He passed away during the Mm -hmm. day and he was surrounded by everybody. His brother and sister were able to say goodbye to him. Uh, they weren't there when he passed, they chose not to be, but his grandparents were there. Um, my husband and I were there. His, my best friend, who was like an aunt to him, was there. Um, and so he, that's what he saw. And that's what he was surrounded yeah. by on a, it, when he finally passed. So Surrounded by so much love. Yeah. So much he love. smiled for us. Yeah. He His last six weeks, 
he really wasn't, again, not very responsive, but Mm -hmm. as I was holding him and I, I, he was faced out towards our family and I was holding him on my lap in his rocking chair. And, um, uh, on his last two breaths, he took two big, he had two huge smiles. And, um, the first one, everybody said, did, did he smile? (laughs) And so I'm thankful he did it again because I really didn't, I didn't sure. see the first one as well, but the second one and he did it again. Mm. That's what he left us with. And this is a kid who, who was always smiling, who hadn't smiled in six weeks, you know, and, and I know, I know he, I know he was smiling. He saw my dad, he saw Jesus, he's, he, you know, and he could, he could, he was free again, finally. Yeah. And yeah. so he left us with that. And that was a gift. Absolutely. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Both of you, Kathy and Deandrea, thank you. Um, in our in our part two of this, we're going to talk about how your grief and your loss has propelled you forward to uh, walk this journey with other people. Um, but thank you both for sharing such tender, beautiful, difficult, hard stories. And um, we need to hear these stories. We need to hear these stories of Max and Nathan, um, and they continue to live on. And uh, I'm looking forward to our next conversation. So with that, um, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this really important conversation. It's difficult, and yet these stories need to be shared. I hope that you'll join us next week for part two with Reverend DeAndrea and Kathy as we talk more about the great organization called A Memory Grows. Until then, check out our website, thecaringcongregation.com, for additional resources and information, and also ways that you can sign up for our spring webinar, February 25th and 26th of 2022. Be sure to share and like this podcast, give us a rating, and then also share this with your pastor as well. Until then, may God bless you and keep you.